Hi there, and welcome to BJD Talks, the official podcast of the British Journal of Dermatology. This is a dermatology journal podcast that might sound a little bit different to others you've heard in the past. We aim to look beyond our published studies and explore the real-world implications of dermatology scholarship in a relaxed, accessible format. Whether you're a dermatology professor, registrar, researcher, patient, or simply a skin enthusiast, we hope you'll join us as we build on our world-leading research through friendly discussion. My name is Dr. Johnny Guckian, and I'm a dermatology registrar in West Yorkshire, as well as an editorial trainee at the BJD. Most importantly, I'll be your host as we dive into issues as wide-ranging as climate dermatology, artificial intelligence, and patient and public involvement in research. A lot of us have been working from home this year, so we thought it might be best to start this podcast at the home of the BJD. In this very first episode of BJD Talks, we meet the BJD's editorial team, who will tell us a story about the human side of dermatology scholarship, the values of an international dermatology journal, and the secrets of what makes a successful BJD publication. So let's meet our three guests. They're all so qualified, I think I could be here for 10 to 15 minutes just giving their introductions, but I'll give it a whirl. First of all, we have Dr. John Ingram, editor of the BJD and a clinical reader and honorary consultant dermatologist at Cardiff University in the UK. Hi, John. Hey, hi. Next up, we have the first of two deputy BJD editors, Professor Eleni Linus, uh, professor of dermatology and epidemiology at Stanford University. Hi, Eleni. Hi, Johnny. Finally, I'm delighted to welcome our other deputy editor, Dr. Neil Rajan, senior lecturer and honorary consultant dermatologist based in Newcastle University also in the UK. Welcome. Hi, Johnny. Good to see you. Hi, guys. Uh, this is the first time that the BJD has delved into the world of podcasting. Can you tell me, why is the BJD doing this now? And how do you all feel about becoming podcast viral megastars? My goodness. Uh, you know, uh, publishing is changing so quickly, isn't it? You know, we need to uh, make sure that we kind of really connect with our audience in, in many different ways. And I think that, you know, the, the old scenario of a uh, gigantic sort of, you know, tomb of knowledge um, arriving on your doorstep is, is maybe changing now. And we need to um, consider how do we spice up the commute? How do we make washing up more interesting? Uh, how do we, you know, ensure that we really connect with our audience in uh, a whole bunch of different ways that um, aren't just, you know, the kind of traditional um, same old same old. Johnny, I think I can add to that a little bit. I think it's something which kind of captures our outreach uh, mission as a journal to really make sure that our authors that publish with us get the broadest engagement. And, and we're doing this on so many fronts. I mean, in a little while, we'll speak about our social media. We'll speak about engagements on, on different platforms there, how we reach out to different stakeholders that we have. And, and we think the podcast is going to be a fantastic addition to that lineup. And Johnny, I'll add that even though I'm super excited about the podcast and the BJD uh, reaching out to people in this new way, I'm personally very nervous, embarrassed, and self-conscious because I probably have to admit at this point that um, some listeners may uh, notice that I'm speaking in an accent that they're not used to. And, and that's partly because of the way I was brought up in Greece, lived in the UK, then came to the US. And I have this, this condition or this uh, uh, situation called being bi-dialectal. So I have two accents. When I speak to people with British accents, my more English or British accent comes through. And when I speak to American colleagues, my American accent comes through. And so this is something that I didn't really realize would be an issue until 
um, until this podcast, then something that I, I want people to know is entirely um, subconscious and um, not something I can, I can control. <laughs> Neil, I think you have a similar situation, right? Yeah, absolutely, Eleni. And I think um, I've recognized that we share this this ability and, and maybe I don't get to show it as often. So I grew up in Malaysia and um, I have this same situation when I move between continents. And when I speak to my Malaysian friends, they don't recognize me when they hear me speaking in, in different contexts. And so increasingly, as we're all recorded um, on different YouTube videos, all the different Zoom videos we've done are now in the public domain. Um, it, it is causing surprises when, when people look us up. So, yeah, I think we both share that. But it's really nice in that it's demonstrating how we're manifesting right here, how the BJD is such a global journal. Um, and uh, Eleni, we're really grateful uh, for, you, for you coming on and kind of over, overcoming that nervousness. We're always nervous when we start off doing a podcast, um, but that doesn't mean that your insights aren't, aren't valued at all. My insights probably sound even better in a British accent, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I tend to find that they're best in an Irish accent, but that's just I me. See, I <laughs> see. Well, I am, I'm thrilled to be here with you. And um, like Neil, I think it's just incredible to be able to share the opportunity to talk about dermatology with colleagues around the world. And I think our upbringing, having grown up in different countries, ranging from Malaysia, the UK, Greece, um, living in um, different countries of the world is just so reflective of, of the journal as a whole. So I'm, mm. I'm glad to be here. And it's fantastic to have such a, you know, uh, a diverse editorial team. We've got uh, just over 80 editorial team members and they're from nearly every continent. We haven't quite reached Antarctica yet. We've got to try harder. <laughs> uh, but um, we're so fortunate to have champions for the BJD in, you know, all the, the major parts of the world and ambassadors really for uh, for dermatology and and for the, the values of the BJD, so uh, you know we're all authors, and it's tremendous that you know the editorial team can really help to shine a light on different parts of the world. Mm. And so, what what we wanted to do in this episode is really kind of poke behind the curtain at the BJD and understand what what happens behind the scenes and what it means to be um, an editor or, or a deputy editor. So, John, I might just ask you first. I mean, a journal editor sounds like a really pretty important, hectic job. What does an editor actually do? Johnny, it is pretty busy. I, I will certainly share that as my first uh, reflection. We're so fortunate to have more than 3,000 submissions a year coming into the journal. And as the, as the editor, I, I get to look at all of them and uh, you know, pass the, the best ones through to folks like Neil and Eleni and our other section editors. And, uh, and then, of course, they take the papers uh, on and, uh, and then we're very much... Um, you know, sort of hugely fortunate to have a great pool of reviewers who do all the really heavy lifting in terms of, you know, keeping and upholding the standards of BJD and, and also, you know, improving papers when they, when they see them. So it's, you know, I think we're, uh, I'm hugely fortunate to have such a, you know, even bigger team than the, than the 80 or so folks on the uh, BJD team itself. So as an editor, I think I'm just pulling it all together, really. Um, that the, the best part of my job is each month I get to see the rolling copy, the, the articles that we've had um, worked up into the final products and I get to select them for the issue. And, you know, we have all of the added value, the commentaries and so on that, that have come in and we have an editorial that, you know, kind of really just sort of tries to shine a light on an important issue for that month as well. So that's actually, that's the most fun bit, I think, of the job is to really um, see that come together. But perhaps the, the, the bit that I, I most enjoy is our annual team day where we get to bring all of our team together more recently virtually but 
In fact, the time differences, you know, make it slightly easier to do that, uh, you know, through a video conference link. So it's about kind of having this, this team of like-minded people who all uh, have shared the same vision of, of really sort of shining a light on the highest quality dermatology research and uh, ensuring that, you know, that the journal highlights stories that really need to And speaking of stories that um, we're interested in, in hearing about, I've, I've been quite interested in hearing, um, Nina and Lenny, your, your stories as to, you know, how does one become a, a, a part of an editorial team at a major dermatology journal? What does it take? So, Alini, if I may go first, I, I think it was a real privilege to be um, asked to to join the BJD by by John and Alini. And I think um, some of this has come out of, of years of working together in, in other spheres and, and overlapping and, and I guess recognizing that we all have similar shared values in terms of what constitutes high quality research that contributes to patient care. And I think across different fields. I mean, my passion is translational research, and you'll hear me speak a bit about a paper in a moment, Johnny. Uh, but across those different fields, we've basically got very strong shared values in that front. And I think that perhaps is is the glue that maybe binds our very different fronts uh, together in that way. But Lainey, I'll invite you to uh, perhaps say a bit more. Yeah, for, for me, being uh, a deputy editor is a great honor and being on an editorial team is something I've always been very passionate about. I love communication of science. I love efficient communication of science and trying to take a complex table full of, you know, numbers and data and distilling what the key message is is fun. It it feels a little bit like a puzzle. It feels a little bit like, you know, poetry when you try and write concisely um and and extract meaning. And for me, being able to do that with science is just, is so fun. I, I know it's not for everyone, but if you enjoy writing, if you enjoy editing, and if you enjoy communicating science, it might be something you want to consider. Um, and the way you, you start is by reviewing, by being a, you know, a, a helpful reviewer. And we can talk a little bit more about what that means. And then eventually, as you do more reviewing, you might get invited to to join an editorial team as well and contribute in that way. But the reason I I do it is because it's just so much fun. Fantastic! That's quite a, a lovely poetic description of of why we all love the the not only the science but communication of the science, which is really wonderful. And speaking of wonderful, I know it's really important as a host for me to be uh, very objective and impartial with these questions. So tell me, anyone, why is the BJD the most wonderful, best journal in the world? So many reasons, Johnny, so many reasons. Um, for me, um, I think it's the breadth of, of um, topics and areas it, it covers. Many um, journals sometimes sell themselves as, as purely basic science or, you know, a subspecialty of derm. But really, we have a carefully curated full house of, of different facets of dermatology, which we all know, you know, ranges in terms of subspecialisms, in terms of research methodology. And, and we deliver that in this really uh, beautifully put together package. I say we when I really mean John here. Completely, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, across the, the, whole, the whole group of us, you know, we, we try to make an offering ultimately that lands on your doorstep, um, for now anyway, that has all those elements. So I, I think not many other journals can can match that really. And I think uh, Neil, you're exactly right. And and I'd add just that we really it's the added value that we put into the papers, and it's you know it's um, we're really um, fortunate that our authors uh, help with that in producing PowerPoint slides for the Journal Club. We have the commentaries 
written by real experts in the field. Often they'd reviewed the paper, so they have tremendous insight into the into the article and and put it into context for our readers. And we're so fortunate to be able to, to kind of put that alongside the paper in each issue. And uh, we've got a plain language summary, of course, which is uh, important to us, not just to communicate um, to the, the the general public and to our our, our patients, but also they're translated into Chinese. So you know, really trying to reach out to our global audience. And so that's uh, um, my shameless plug section done. So, um, John, you can slip me the brown envelope a bit uh, later on. <laughs> um, instead, I'm going to flip it now. And uh, as hopefully you guys will recall, I got to switch roles um, and set you homework um, to do some reading and reflecting. So what I want you to do is I want you to tell me about an article that you read this month in the BJD. And tell us, what did you learn from it? And why is it BJD material? Perhaps, Neil, could I start with you? Yeah, uh, thanks, Johnny. And so um, the article I chose is a piece that looks at why patients who have vitiligo don't develop as much skin cancer as you'd expect. Now, we all know that ultraviolet light causes DNA damage in cells, and cancer is effectively uh, a process where the DNA of skin cells has been altered and it gives those skin cells an advantage and then they proliferate and they grow and we see a lump in our skin. Now, you would expect that you had less protection in your skin if you had less uh, melanin. And, and we know that melanin is almost this cat that sits across the nucleus at sun-exposed sites, like sunblock, if you like. You, you'd expect more damage to your DNA and you'd expect to see more skin cancer. And so the paper that um, I've highlighted um, has got a sense of, of trying to tease that mechanism apart. And, and what it's done is it's looked at the skin cells in patients with vitiligo and studied um, RNA molecules that sit within these cells. And it's teased out a mechanism that suggests that when these cells lack pigments, as in vitiligo skin, there is actually an upregulation of a protective process that reduces DNA damage in those cells. And so it's almost as if they're, they're making up for the increased amount of DNA damage they're accumulating when they don't have the protective um, pigment across the top. And, and the reason this is a really good BJD paper is, firstly, it comes from India, where there is a lot of vitiligo, and it's a huge problem. And the impact of vitiligo there has got uh, huge consequences in terms of whether people can be married or whether they can be in relationships or otherwise. So the stigma socially, the, the uh, financial and familial consequences are huge. And there's a huge drive to study and understand it better. And this paper comes from um, Brambrat et al. And they're based at the CSIR at the Institute of Genomics and Integrative Biology in New Delhi. And what they have done is they've studied the vitiligo samples using cutting edge technology, firstly, but then they've not just, you know, left it as a description. They've then gone on to take primary keratinocytes from patient samples and test to see whether by tweaking the different elements of the mechanism that they propose, that they actually have functional evidence that supports their finding. And they certainly do. And so what we really like is the fact that this is a paper that's been performed to the highest standards. It's come from a center where vitiligo research is, is really uh, going forward. And it's you know, um, something which has given us a new insight into why skin cancer doesn't happen at these places where you would expect them to. That's really interesting, uh, Neil. Thank you. And, and you, get a, you get a merit for uh, distilling the complex uh, <laughs> um, hard science dermatology. And uh, um, I, I wish I had you sat 
next to me whenever I'm I'm reading more of the these types of papers. Anytime, honey. Anytime. <laughs> I'm only a tweet away, as you know. So yeah. Um, I wanted to ask based based on that because obviously we we publish quite a lot of hard science or traditional hard science research in the BJD. Why do you value that kind of hard science, or why do we value that in the BJD? Um, so I think that sort of robust science that actually isn't just uh, an observation, but um, science which is an observation, and then that leads to the development of a, a hypothesis, and then that's tested in a model that's patient relevant. I think those three steps are really important in terms of actually making translational advances, because it is so um, often the case that many um, just do one or two of those steps, um, and then they they fail to take it further. So I think it's difficult to bring things back to the clinic and to the translational um, message that we give to our readers and ultimately our patients without all those layers of evidence. So I think if we don't deliver on on giving robust hard science, then we can't ultimately deliver on our translational aim. Fantastic. Um, and very obviously very worthy goals. Elena, you're next up. Your time, time for your homework to, to, to submit it. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the paper you've read. Yeah, and um, Johnny, I, I actually chose um, a paper that was actually written by by our own team um, simply to highlight the um, the reason we chose the BJD as authors. So to, to highlight the author's perspective of why we submitted to the BJD and why we think that this paper was a good fit for the journal. And this is a a qualitative study. This is a study of telehealth for older adults with skin disease, where we um, did a formal qualitative analysis of dermatologists' perspectives and experiences after the COVID pandemic really accelerated the use of telemedicine. And what we wanted to understand was really what these dermatologists felt were the key barriers, the key recommendations in order to provide excellent care for older adults. And part of the reason uh, that I think this is a really good fit for the BJD is because it focuses on a vulnerable population, on older adults who sometimes are excluded from technological solutions and maybe a group that is forgotten or left behind as we rapidly switched to teledermatology. And the other reason I thought it was um, a very good fit for the BJD is because the BJD really is a leader in publishing high-quality qualitative research. And if you look across the last 10 years of the main dermatology journals, there are very, very few qualitative research articles published in, in other journals. And so this type of research that is incredibly important at distilling deep insights into a certain problem or, or disease really is, um, I feel like the BJD is really one of the main journals that highlights this type of research. And so um, this was, you know, the, the other reason I, I wanted to highlight this paper was that this was led by two of our trainees who are British and Dutch. So kind of extending that global collaboration and the, the global nature of um, of the journal. So the, the, the authors span several continents and countries and yet really come together to to distill some key themes. And I, I can talk about what we found if, if you'd like to, Johnny. Yeah, um, of course. Okay. So maybe I'll keep this brief, but <laughs> in these... Um, you know, we had about 23 interviews with dermatologists from across the U.S. And, you know, what we found was that during COVID, the experiences of telehealth with older adults 
uh, showed some benefits. So because of lack of transportation and uh, being able to come into the office, some older adults, some older patients actually found telehealth helpful. Uh, uh, Participants said that it works very well for stable and chronic diseases, but did express some concerns about diagnosis of malignant lesions. There was a lot of variability in terms of access. So technology was a barrier for some older adults, but not for all. So many of them actually adapted very quickly to using a camera and being able to send images. But some of the challenges our dermatologist participants mentioned are are difficulties with seeing the whole patient and feeling the skin, as well as difficulties communicating uh, virtually, whether it was language barriers and the, the lack of translators or really being able to have these uh, more in-depth communication conversations about uh, treatment recommendations. So the the recommendations we concluded with was that really we need to give comprehensive instructions ahead of time so that older adults are able to access the technology or the system used by each practice, that appropriate appointment triage is crucial. So some conditions work very, very well with teledermatology and others really need an in-person appointment, really that we should not make assumptions about patient comfort with technology based on age alone, uh, because there is this huge range in, in comfort level, and really that it's very important to manage patient expectations about what can be achieved and what really can't be achieved through a virtual visit. And ultimately, we conclude that telehealth is here to stay and needs to be accessible for all. And we need to make sure that as we adapt and build technology platforms, we are uh, designing with older adults in mind. And uh, that means focusing on usability and access for everyone. Thank you, Lainey. And actually, in future episodes of this podcast, we will be um, diving a bit more into um, the murky waters on occasion of uh, teledermatology and also looking at how we better cater for uh, more vulnerable populations um, amongst our patients, for example, older patients, but also those experiencing health inequalities. And I think those two answers were beautifully contrasting in terms of the the types of science that were happening, but living under the same roof, which is which is wonderful. I mean, sorry, Neil, I'm a little bit biased in terms of I, I, I'm a I'm a quality nerd myself, though we would say that bias is okay. We have lots of we all have biases, so so <laughs> I'm allowed to say that. Um uh, John, what about what about you? What what paper have you been reading? Yeah, so I, I love the breadth of the journal and and I think it allows us to tell stories from different perspectives, different angles, which is part I think of the BC of of the journal really. And I have to admit that the paper I want to shine a light on isn't from this month, but it's the COVID story itself. And yeah, I think it's given us a chance in dermatology to kind of punch above our weight a little bit and, and reach out to other specialties and beyond that to patients and the public. And that I've been really pleased that we could do in terms of adding value to you know what's been a tricky pandemic situation. But um, you know, it's evolved. And at the beginning, we had the Galvan Kassas paper that in BGD, which looked at the main there's manifestations of COVID and those sort of um, pattern recognition that um, you know was really important, particularly at the beginning. And then there was a whole debate around are COVID toes caused by COVID? Are they just chillblains? You know, are we just kind of uh, overthinking it? But actually, you know, we had a beautiful paper from Colmenero and colleagues that demonstrated the spike protein in the uh, endothelial lining of 
small vessels in chilblains, uh, even in those who are testing negative for COVID, so uh, on PCR and so on. So, so it was really a, a great visualization that allowed us to help solve that mystery. And then more recently, of course, we've had the vaccination reaction patterns as well that have come through. But the paper I wanted to mention uh, just, just for a moment was by Visconti and, and co-authors. And it, for me, uh, it was uh, an important one because it, it came out in, uh, in May this year and, and it was using the, the sort of routine data collection of over 300,000 UK users of a COVID symptom study app. So people were just really contributing to research through their experiences of COVID. And by distilling that information, we got some really important results for people, you know, in the public and as well as medical professionals. So at 17% of, of SARS-CoV-2 positive cases, uh, the patients reported that a skin rash was the first presentation. So really, you know, it was a pretty useful guide to uh, going to go and get a PCR test and, and self-isolate. And also that 21% reported it was the only clinical sign of COVID. So again, it could be a key marker to just really draw attention to that this, this could be COVID. And, uh, and of course, this paper also produced a catalogue of images of the COVID uh, rashes that people had, had sent in through the app. So it's just a brilliant example, I think, of, uh, of the public being able to contribute to research directly. And, and then, of course, the analysis has to be really robust to draw out the key messages that might help uh, the wider public and, and policymakers in terms of how to approach this really uh, unprecedented uh, situation. Thank you. And, and I mean, if you could just... We take us back to 2018, and if you would just imagine, like thinking that the big mystery that we would all be looking to solve over the following years would be about toes, you would, you 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 wouldn't have guessed it. But I think that's really that's a really nice story, as you say. It's the story of COVID, and um, you know, our our authors have come up with the answers um at each step, which is really really positive. So one thing I am keen for this podcast to be is is accessible um, to those at all stages of their career. As an early career researcher myself, sometimes the world of scholarship uh, can seem pretty scary and intimidating. What messages might you guys provide for someone get, just getting started in uh, the field of dermatology research? Johnny, I, I might defer to Neil and Eleni on, on this question because it's been great that um, we've had BGD editorial trainees and Eleni's mentioned this already. And, you know, there's that connection to our audience that isn't just, you know, sort of in ivory towers. It's very much dermatologists in training and, of course, involving them in the journal as authors as well as readers is uh, is really important. And, and Neil, I was just thinking about the image gallery, for example. That's a really nice option for, you know, where authors just starting out. Absolutely, John. And um, briefly, Johnny, if I, if I may plug the image gallery section, it's an eye-catching part of the BJD where we really, in a very short uh, hundred-word uh, limit, want teams um, to put across their best images to the BJD. And, you know, these have to be of the highest technical quality. They have to be a, a striking image. They have to, you know, want to draw the reader in to uh, learn from that little gem. And it's a, it's a real opportunity for trainees to, to contribute to the BJD. And I think, you know, please send us your submissions. I would also like to say a little bit about starting on research, Johnny, as you as you touched on. And I think um, the important message that I have, I guess, is find an area of research which, you know, you can connect with and be motivated by because research isn't uh, always uh, an easy process. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And for me, the motivation has always been to try to improve patient care. And so where that's, you know, been the unmet area 
of need, I've found a niche for myself, and you'll know that that's in genetics and patients who get more than their fair share of tumors in the family to, you know, pull me to the point of trying to, to study these um, conditions more because they're overlooked um, and to try to find new ways to come up with treatments. And so as much as I like all the geeky aspects of science and genetics and, and uh, you know, drilling down into to DNA and RNA um, down to the level of a single cell, what really, you know, brings me home is the fact that some of these steps are key in terms of bringing forward translational advances. So my two pennies are, you know, find a clinical cause that motivates you and then put everything behind it in terms of research to make that cause better. And I have a slightly related but different perspective on that, Neil, which is that I think research can be fun and inspiring regardless of the topic. But I think for me, what makes a huge difference is your colleagues and your mentors. So I would say, you know, even if you don't have a topic you're passionate about, if you have a mentor who will inspire you and look after you and give you work that is appropriate for your level, so it's challenging but not not overwhelming, that is interesting and not necessarily, you know, scut work or, or you know, um, something that's, that's not appropriate for your level and and who will sponsor you and support you and teach you not just, you know, how to do the exact technique of a certain experiment, but also how to write and how to publish and how to present at a conference. Because a academic research in dermatology is a lot more than the science alone. And I think sometimes what happens is people, you know, get lost because they don't have a good relationship or, or a, a certain researcher may not have time to devote to the mentorship and uh, teaching. So I would say a good mentor, an experienced mentor who, um, who loves mentoring and loves teaching is often just as important as, as finding a, a cause or a disease that um, you care about. Yeah, I might actually um, come in um, on that and just offer my perspective as a uh, early career researcher and uh, as a dermatology registrar who's been lucky enough to be in part of the uh, BJD's editorial um, trainee team. And I know you guys um, mentioned mentorship and relationships. And I think that the best part of research for me is about relationships. It's about growth. It's about learning. The science is important, of course, and that's why we get into this. But these things which start off as byproducts become what keeps us in um, the field. And I know from my experience as an editorial trainee, we have our editorial trainee team of uh, like-minded sort of early career researchers. And we, we get involved in, in our niche, which is social media, um, which I could talk about for ages and will do on a future episode. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I would advise those who are, who are very early on in their career, maybe medical students or, or those just getting started in allied health uh, professions, that research can seem scary and it can seem long. Um, we're we're used in society now to have the, to have quick wins and things that you know help you succeed overnight. That's not going to happen in research, and you have to be prepared to fail, and you have to be prepared to bang your head against the wall at three in the morning, and you have to really love your science to to want to get past that. But what will help you with that will be forming relationships and becoming, I know I hate the word, but becoming resilient and learning about yourself in that process. And that that's the, the tips that those are the tips that I always give to learners getting started out. They're not quite from a, a eminent professor just just yet, but they you served me they've served me all right. Not so yet, far. Johnny, not yet. <laughs> But not long, I don't think, either. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I like taking the long way around with things. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I just wanted to ask briefly just about, because we, we've been talking about global things for the, the entirety of this, this podcast and um, the global experience, the global community um, at the BJD. But 
Um, we have global dissemination and global reach of the BJD. John, maybe you could talk for a little bit about how, how do we achieve this at the BJD practically? So I think we've always aspired to be a truly global journal. And to do that, I think we've had a couple of different uh, key elements. One is to really have ambassadors and champions for the journal in all those parts of the world. And our editorial team become both the ambassador, but also authors, and they have a network of reviewers and so on that draws people into the journal from each of those different, uh, not just parts of the world, but different perspectives in, in trying to reach out to underserved and underrepresented parts of the dermatology community. And I think that the next element to that is the more, most recent thing that we've done is to create a new section of the journal, uh, Global Health and Equity, our, our first new section in a, a few years. And I'm really pleased we've done it. We should have done it long ago. Uh, and I'm delighted that Esther Freeman at Harvard has agreed to uh, lead the section. And she's brought together a, a group of brilliant associate editors embedded in different parts of the world and with different expertise in structural racism and migrant health and some of these issues that really probably don't get fair airing at all currently. And uh, we've got this brilliant platform to ensure that we fix that, that we really give a, uh, a great sort of spotlight on some of these issues that, that really had long needed to be heard. So uh, I'm really excited for the sort of uh, papers that we're going to be able to attract into the journal. I think that's part of it is if you build it, you know, people will hopefully come and, and make use of that platform. And uh, so, uh, yeah, we're just looking forward now to drawing in more and more papers in this field. And, uh, you know, we've had some great ones and particularly things like you know, the absence of, of skin of color images in COVID, for example, that was a, a lovely cover image that uh, Eleni and, and colleagues uh, produced a while back. But yeah, so, you know, it's, I think it's all about the papers we publish and, and reaching out to those different parts of, of the world and the community. And um, John, if I can build on that, I think that's already showing because, you know, we've got an editorial trainee opportunity coming up in, in the coming months and it'll be great to, you know, follow on the momentum of last year. And, and just to, to, to give an indication, we had something like 132 applicants last year from all over the world. And, um, you know, it was fantastic to see such enthusiasm for dermatology um, and such a breadth of places applying and, and wanting to be part of our team. So, you know, that's an opportunity that's coming up in, in the coming months and there should be an ad out soon and it'll be great for that to, to happen. But it really aligns, John, with what you're saying about, you know, once you start to develop and grow that brand, it really sells and then people, you know, start to buy in. I'd also like to say that it's really fun working uh, with a global team. And, and recently I had the opportunity to mentor one of our editorial trainees to write a commentary on a paper. And so this commentary was being written between Newcastle, Yale and Sydney, right? And so um, we have short timelines for our commentaries. And so, you know, there's a real push to, to get that piece of work done. But literally, uh, when I went to bed in Newcastle, I put my bit in and then at four in the morning UK time, my trainee in Yale had done his bit. And then by seven in the morning, my colleague in Sydney had done that bit. And so by the time I got up at eight in the morning, um, I was ready to do my next bit. So I think it's the fastest commentary I've ever written. That, that's the, yeah, the global uh, time zone is working for you. Yeah, no, it, I've had the same experience. Again, um, uh, to reiterate what Neil said, our editorial trainees have this added opportunity to co-author commentaries with us, which I think is just the wonderful first step at, at writing for, for many of them. And the commentary we wrote also spanned Canada to the UK and had that benefit of uh, of the time zone. So that really is a wonderful benefit of the the global nature of the team. I would say that some of my best work has been done at four in the morning. And <laughs> people might people might say, "Oh, were you in another country?" And like, 
Yeah. Yeah, sure. Of course it was. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, would, I would just add as an editorial trainee, current editorial trainee myself, that it's a great experience. So please, if you're listening and you're thinking about starting a career in research, please do apply. Don't be put off by the 130 or something people who, who applied. Last time, every, every application is different. If they can put up with me for a couple of years, you know, you've def- any of you've got a chance. Uh, <laughs> so um, it's definitely a worthwhile and, and uh, fantastic experience. And I think I just wanted to maybe just end on something that, that um, John had said, you know, if you, if you build it, they will come. We're hoping that uh, we've built this podcast. We will, some of some listeners, maybe one or two might come and, and, and uh, follow on with the rest of the series where we're hoping to cover all kinds of different um, topics. But if you yourself as a listener have an interesting um, thought, concept, idea um, of something you'd like us to talk about at the BJD, or if you, if you are potentially a speaker or know a speaker who'd like to come and share uh, your thoughts, we'd be more than happy to speak to you. Uh, if you get to know me, you know I'll talk to anyone. Um, so if you're interested, uh, just pop onto our social media um, at, at BRJ Dermatology on Instagram and uh, at BRJ Dermatol on Twitter. And that brings us to the end of the episode uh, of the very first episode of BJD Talks. We've covered the global impacts uh, of research, uh, the importance of teamwork and mentorship in publications, and hopefully we've demystified the research process just a little bit. We look forward to sharing the next episodes. And in the meantime, please do reach uh, out to us at the social be mentioned or on the hashtag, hashtag BJD Talks. So thank you all and bye for now. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks, Johnny. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye, everyone.